Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 22:66 through 23:5. Hear the word of the Lord. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So about a year ago, I watched a documentary series on Netflix, and it was called The Innocence Files. And it's about an organization called The Innocence Project, which is an organization that helps people who are wrongly convicted of crimes be exonerated. And the series covers cases like Thomas Hainsworth, who as an 18-year-old, he left home one morning because his mom asked him to go get potatoes from the grocery store. And on his way to the store, a woman saw him walking and said, He was the man who had attacked her. And on his way home, carrying the potatoes, the police pulled up to him and arrested him. He was convicted on eyewitness testimony. Though he had nothing to do with the crimes that he was charged with, he was 18 years old and sentenced to life in prison. And he served 27 years of a life sentence until the Innocence Project took up his case and exonerated him. Another one, another case like this, uh, Frankie Carrillo, who was arrested as a 16-year-old Hispanic boy. He was accused of gang murder. He was confused. And he thought, of course, this would get cleared up. I mean, he was 16. He he trusted the court system, and he told his, his dad as much. But at the age of 17, he was convicted of murder through eyewitness testimony and served 20 years until he was exonerated through the help of the Innocence Project. He says as a 17-year-old, this is what he says. He said, he felt invisible. No one was acknowledging me, he said. No one was asking me specifically what had happened. And I could keep going with story after story in this series. You can find it on Netflix. You should just watch it. It's a fascinating documentary, but it's also aggravating. To see this injustice of innocent men being punished, many years of their lives being taken from them, and many of them with little compensation after the fact, after they're released. There's something about that that just hits me in a profound way. 
Because these are stories of people. Real people. And they're stories of a court system that failed them. The stories are filled with presumed guilt, corruption, indifference, indifference on the part of the government, false accusations, and some of the characters in their stories, some of the prosecutors and criminologists, they're just dark. They seem evil. And in our passage in Luke this morning, we read about another story, another story that involves a miscarriage of justice, one that's also filled with corruption. It's filled with false accusations. It's filled with a government that is indifferent, just the bureaucracy that isn't working out. And then there's evil there, too. And our story this morning is a tale of two courtrooms, two different trials, two different authorities. One is filled with Jewish religious leaders. The other is is bureaucratic. It holds the weight of the Roman rule. One room pronounces Jesus as a blasphemer, and the other says he's an insane person, not worth their time. Luke is trying to get us to narrow down our options for who the identity of Jesus could be. Who is he? Is he a moral teacher? Is he an insurrectionist and an insane person? Is he a blasphemer? Or is he, is he the Son of God? This question of his identity is answered through, through Jesus' responses in the midst of all this courtroom drama. So I'm going to take us through our passage and retell the story for us. And as we go back through it together, I want you to take note of one thing. Take note of how Jesus responds. At every part of the story, the story plays out as you might expect in most courtroom dramas. But there's one pretty major difference. So take note of how Jesus responds. And then I'm going to finish our time with three things concerning Jesus' response. So let's pick up in courtroom number one. Look with me at, at Luke 22, starting in verse 66. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrest, arrested by the Jewish elders. This is the Sanhedrin, as they were known. And, and these are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They're made up of scholars and, and leaders and wealthy man, men of influence. And it was headed up by the high priest himself, who we know from the Gospel of Matthew was called Caiaphas. And these leaders have tried to catch Jesus for a really long time. They, they really despise him. And earlier in Luke, Luke says as much. Luke says that these men were seeking to destroy Jesus. He says that in Luke 20. And they were even willing to go as far as to do this backdoor mafioso deal to try to, to, try to capture Jesus. And they did with the help, with the help of Judas. They really want him dead. But before that they, can, they can do that, they need to justify his death religiously. They need to catch Jesus in a capital offense according to Jewish law. And so this is courtroom drama number one. This courtroom is established by his own people, his very own put him to trial. He stands before the Sanhedrin, before this council of 70 Jewish leaders, and they ask him one question. They ask him about his identity. In verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. But this question, it's not really as it appears. It's not a genuine question with genuine curiosity about who Jesus is. No, this, is, this question is actually their legal strategy. 
See, the leaders are wanting to charge him with blasphemy, so they want to catch Jesus speaking something untrue about God concerning himself. They want him to claim to be something that he's not actually. They want him to falsely claim to be the Messiah. They want him to be guilty of blasphemy. But Jesus' response here is probably the most he's going to say for the rest of our story. And I think it's because if he has a message for anyone, it's, it's for his own people. He says this, If I tell you, then you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You see, these men got more than they bargained for in Jesus' response. Jesus knows that these men, these religious leaders, they're not really interested in a conversation about whether Jesus is actually the Messiah or not. So Jesus essentially says, if I try to convince you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you a question to try to lead you down the path to getting the right answer, you're going to refuse to answer that question. It's like he's saying, men, we've done this before. We've been here. We've had these discussions. So Jesus instead, he ups the ante. And he says, you know the Son of Man. That prophet, uh, Daniel's vision from the ancient scriptures, the Old Testament, this Son of Man who comes with the power of God. Well, that, that is me. And Jesus says that through these words. He says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this is kind of confusing for us to read today. But Jesus is actually saying that he's not just their Messiah. He's not only their Messiah. You see, for the Jews, the Messiah didn't necessarily have to be God himself. But here Jesus is saying, I'm going to go directly to God's presence and rule on divinity's side of heaven. And this is a bold claim. But if it's true... If it's true, then what's threatening about it to the leaders, the Jewish leaders, is that it's a question of power. It's a question of authority. The Sanhedrin finally feel like they have Jesus, they have Jesus chained up in front of them. They feel like the balance of power has, has shifted back to them. But in this brilliant reply, he twists the courtroom around. And he's saying, whatever happens in this trial is irrelevant. I'm going to rule from God's side in heaven. You can't judge me. And actually, I'm your judge. That's essentially what Jesus is saying there. And the leaders get that. So they ask him the same leading question one more time, just to make sure that they have Jesus' answer on the record. Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus' response back in verse 72 with, you say, I am. This is Jesus' way of affirming what they are saying, but making them just say it first. So the religious leaders have their religious case. They can claim Jesus has blasphemed, but that's not enough to get rid of Jesus permanently. That's not enough to, to kill him. Under, under Roman occupation, the leaders were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. So only the Roman justice system could, could do that. So now in order to accomplish that, they have to take Jesus to courtroom number two. They have to take their case to Rome. And that's exactly 
what they do. So let's go to courtroom number two. Sitting as the judge in courtroom number two is not 70 men like the last courtroom. It's just one, Pilate. And Pilate was the governor of Judea. He had a reputation for being a pragmatist, for being brutal and violent. And Rome was really concerned about Jerusalem being a place of civil unrest. So they, the emperor sent Pilate there just to make sure that there would be no uprising. Right? They, he knew Pilate was going to be able to shut it down. And Pilate would normally be in, in Caesarea, where the governor always lived, but he's in Jerusalem for Passover because this is a time of year when the Jews start dreaming of independence. They remember the oppression of Egypt, and so the radicals start to stir things up around this time of year. There's just this intensity to it all, and the religious leaders play into that. And when they get in front of Pilate, this is what they say about Jesus. This is, this is what they say. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. There's two things here. The leaders know Pilate doesn't really care about Jesus' claims to be some, the fulfillment of some ancient Jewish prophecy in Daniel. But Pilate does care about when a religious leader tells people not to pay taxes to Caesar, which, by the way, Jesus did not do, right? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But anyway, Pilate also cares if Jesus is claiming to be king because that means that Jesus wants to start an insurrection. So they have Pilate's attention, and, and Pilate asks him the same question about his identity. He goes, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And I think there's some sarcasm in that. And Jesus responds like he did in the last courtroom. He says, you have said so. I like to imagine Pilate as this modern day regional government man, like, like a mayor. He, he woke up that morning that he met Jesus and he put on his, his well-tailored suit. He kissed his wife goodbye until she called him on his cell phone later. He gets to his office, which has a scotch, you know, some scotch on the coffee table. Um, by the couch. He's got a box of cigarettes in the bottom drawer for when he's feeling particularly anxious and overwhelmed. His desk is filled with paperwork. It's just got a stack of paperwork on it. And his days are packed with the myriad of concerns that come with running a local government, right? Taxes, roads, education, the political victories over his opponents, the daily briefings on COVID-19. I mean, there's endless work to be done, right? And as he stands in front of Jesus, he's half thinking about this growing mound of other work that he needs to be doing to keep his job. And Pilate takes one look at Jesus, he studies him quickly, and he thinks, this guy is not a leader of an insurrection. Look at him. This guy's just a little bit out of his gourd. So he turns to the religious leaders, he says, I find no guilt in this man. And he's just thinking, that's going to move it all along. But the Jewish leaders are filled with disdain. They're adamant, and they come back saying, we know he looks harmless, but he's actually a terrorist. He's recruiting people from all over, even, even from Galilee. And that's all Pilate needed to hear, that one piece about Galilee, because he's a politician. He's got work that needs to be done. He already feels like this situation is a distraction from his real work. So he shifts the responsibility away from himself and onto King Herod's plate. Galilee is in Herod's jurisdiction, so this is going to be Herod's problem. This is the bureaucracy of Rome at play, 
right here. And, and conveniently, because it's Passover, Herod is also in Jerusalem. And that wouldn't necessarily be the case. So Herod is this puppet king under the Roman system. He doesn't really have the authority that Pilate did, but he's got enough. And Herod has been mentioned throughout Luke. And it's clear that Jesus shows up before, when Jesus shows up before Herod, Herod doesn't really care about this case against Jesus. Herod, the only thing Herod is concerned about is he wants to see confirmation of what he's heard about Jesus. He wants to hear, see a miracle. He wants to see a sign. And, and Herod then questions Jesus for a while. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer him once. Jesus sees right through Herod's whole thing. And eventually, probably out of insecurity matched with the abuse of power, Herod mocks Jesus. He dresses him up in fancy clothes to help him look like a real king. And he just can't be bothered anymore. Herod wants to go back to playing golf and hanging with ladies in the clubhouse. So he shifts the responsibility again, and he sends him back to Pilate. Don't you see, Rome didn't take Jesus seriously. To them, he was just this guy who was off his rocker. But now, now Pilate is stuck. Jesus is coming back to him. He doesn't want to deal with this, so he calls the religious leaders, and he makes his final case in the Roman courtroom. He says this in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 23. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us too. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. So this is the second time Jesus, Pilate says Jesus is innocent. And again, Pilate's a pragmatist. He's trying to figure out some middle ground. He's doing right by the law here. He's not killing a person who's innocent, but he also wants to appease the religious leaders to make sure that they don't revolt. So he's going to send a message to the religious leaders by punishing Jesus. And he's also going to send a message to Jesus saying, hey, I don't really want you to keep doing this stuff, so I'm going to make you bleed a little bit so you stop. But by now the people are more riled up. This makes Pilate even more nervous. They start asking for Barabbas, another prisoner, to be released because apparently there's this custom that at Passover a, a prisoner would be released back to the Jewish people. And again, this was just for Rome, a way to change the narrative around Passover, right? Uh, around Passover, the Jews start remembering independence. But Rome wants to be like, hey, you don't, you don't need to remember your independence. Well, see, we're good to you guys. We'll give you back prisoners. Just settle down. But Pilate's frustrated. He's nervous. He doesn't understand. And for a third time, he declares Jesus as innocent. And in verse 22, he says this, what evil has he done? What evil has he done? I have, found him, I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him. What the crowd is asking Pilate to do is probably ridiculous sounding to him. Why would he release a guilty man in order to punish and crucify an innocent man? It makes no sense. And we, and we probably shouldn't feel sympathy for Pilate, but this situation gets me close. The crowd keeps getting bigger, getting more amped up. They're shouting to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. They're threatening to riot. And Pilate doesn't want to deal with an insurrection. 
So Pilate wanting to preserve his job, he wanted to preserve his relationship, his political relationship with the leaders of the Jewish people. Wanting to stop what he feels like is ridiculous rioting, he decides what Luke says in verse 23, that their voices prevailed and Pilate decided their demand should be granted. Jesus is just a pawn in a political game. For Pilate, Jesus' blood was not on his hands. In his mind, what other option did he have? You see, in both courtrooms, the question of Jesus' identity is at play. In the first courtroom, the Jewish courtroom, he's a blasphemer. In the second courtroom, the Roman courtroom, he's an insane person. But what's interesting in each of these court proceedings is how Jesus responds. Did you notice that? Jesus doesn't try to declare his innocence. He doesn't even pay any lawyers. He doesn't call any witnesses. He doesn't try to explain himself when he's cross-examined. Apart from a few words, Jesus is silent. He barely says anything. And that's what's like, peculiar about this story. And there are three things I want us to see about Jesus' silence in the face of the judgments and opinions about him and his identity. And the first is this. Jesus' silence confronts the powerful. Think back to Jesus' interactions with the figures of institutional power. Jesus has few words for the Sanhedrin, this 70-strong group that sits before him trying to trap him in blasphemy. He's not willing to play their game. He gives them the smoking gun that they need and moves on. Then before Herod, Jesus doesn't even dignify Herod with words. The silence echoes before Herod, who doesn't even know how to respond to that. So he retorts in the only way he knows how, by, by being a fool and fooling around. And for Luke, it's clear. Herod made a mockery of himself while he was trying to make a mockery of Jesus. The most striking though, is when Jesus stands before the representative of Roman power, the, the real representative, Pilate. Jesus doesn't have many words for Pilate either, just like when he was before the Sanhedrin, he uses Pilate's words against him. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you have said so. And you see, Pilate sees nothing in Jesus like the power he sees in himself. Here is a poor, homeless Jewish man with no government position, no military might behind him, no followers anymore. He's alone, taken by some old religious men. And to him, to Pilate, Jesus stands before him totally at Pilate's mercy. Jesus' silence confronts human power. All the politicians, the kings, the councils in this story are enraptured by their own power. And you see, the way of the world is to find power from within for the sake of control. It's to find power within systems of this world in order to control and to dominate. But this is power from below. This is earthly power. Jesus here demonstrates power from above, power from heaven, the power that Jesus models for us is power from God known in weakness for the sake of love. 
Jesus stood before the powers that be, and he looked weak. He looked non-threatening. He looked insane. And yet he was the Son of God, God himself. And the silence of Jesus before power is deafening. It strips away and it pulls away the mask of the masquerade of human power. Even as Christians, we're tempted to be powerful too. We're tempted to play the game too. Why do we pursue power? What, what deeper needs are we attempting to meet when we pursue power? Why do we crave position, achievement, success? Is there a deeper ache that we're neglecting to notice? Henri Nouwen says this, The long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. One thing is clear to me. The temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. Jesus chose silence and intimacy with his Father over power. Do we choose silence and intimacy with our Father over and against the pursuit of power? You see, Jesus' silence confronts the powerful, but it also condemns the world. Jesus' silence also condemns the world. Luke shows Jesus being moved into and out of these two courtrooms. The leaders are asking him all these questions. The crowds are shouting at him. The soldiers are mocking him. Everyone is talking. Everyone is filled with words. But Jesus, did you notice Jesus? Jesus lets them talk. And I'm not a trial lawyer, but from what I've heard, some trial lawyers say that sometimes the best thing to do to say to a hostile witness is nothing at all. You just let them talk. You let them fill in the silence. You let them condemn themselves with their own words and actions. You see, everyone in this story believes Jesus is the one on trial, but the way Luke tells it is that Jesus is actually putting all of them on trial. The Sanhedrin are like their own little mafia. They're doing backdoor deals and lying. Herod is a fool. Pilate is looking out for himself, trying to preserve his own career and the position of power. So who really is on trial here? The one who is innocent? Is Jesus on trial? Or is it everyone else? Luke is asking us, whose hands are dirty and whose hands are clean? And what about us? Is there anything in this story that we haven't done to Jesus? Have we never betrayed him or denied him? Have we ever lied to him or about him? Have we ever ignored him when it was convenient, or like in order to preserve ourselves or to preserve our career? What about us? Are our hands clean? Luke makes it clear. Everyone put Jesus on trial. 
the leaders and the crowds, the Jews and the Gentiles. The world put Jesus on trial. And in the process, the world condemned itself. Jesus allowed that. And here's the real question. If Jesus is really God, and if the world is really guilty, then why would Jesus stay silent? Why would he stay silent? Well, Jesus' silence does one last thing in the story. And this helps us understand why. Jesus' silence saves a sinner. The crowd shouts, give us Barabbas. And Jesus stays silent. Most scholars agree that Barabbas is Bar-Abbas. That's what it is. Bar-Abbas, the son of the father. Bar being son, Abba being father. Barabbas means son of the father. Do you get the irony there? A son of the father on death row, condemned and guilty because of his wrongdoing. He was tried and found guilty of insurrection and murder. And Jesus willingly, silently, exchanges his innocence for this man's guilt. Barabbas does nothing to deserve this. And deep within the heart of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he, not, he, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Who really is Barabbas in this story? It's you. It's me. You know, do we, do we know if Barabbas became a believer in Jesus after this? No. In fact, he might have walked out of that courtroom celebrating. We don't know. But Jesus, the one true son of the Father, Jesus willingly and silently took the punishment that he deserved. And through, through silence, Jesus saved us all. We don't know how Barabbas responded to Jesus, but we, we know how we respond to Jesus. Will we walk away unfazed and unchanged? Or will we sit in the uncomfortable silence that Jesus leaves us with when he took our place? When he took our judgment and placed it on his back and he took it to the cross, will we sit in that silence? Will we repent and continue to repent and believe and cling to the person who hung on the cross? Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, we thank you for your silence. Your silence that saved sinners. Your silence that challenged and confronted the powers that be. Your silence that 
brought about the resurrection and your kingdom inaugurated here on earth. We pray, Jesus, that we would listen to you in your silence. That your silence would draw us closer to you. That your silence would lead us towards intimacy with you and with your Father. We love you, Lord. Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. And now we're going we're gonna to move into our time of communion. And I'm reminded that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering and honoring and tasting of the body that Jesus gave in order to save us. So I encourage you to receive this gift by sitting in the silence that Jesus offers you. My prayer for you is that by sitting in that silence, Jesus will lead you into intimacy with him. Let me read into your hearing the words of institution from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.